Okay. So, assalamu alaikum. So this is the, the Islamic reading of peace, peace be upon you all. And I wanted to thank the MSA and Marquette for, for the wonderful hospitality and for the fact that you're hosting me. And it actually sounds like you wanted to host me. It wasn't that you had five other people who were just unavailable. So, so thank you for that as well. And, and so my assignment is to speak about being Muslim in an age of anxiety. And anxiety is what we'll begin with. Uh, uh, as I stated to, to some of my colleagues in earlier meetings today, uh, last school year, the most common issue that students were coming to me with was anxiety, far and away above everything else. So in the, in the work of pastoral care that, that I've been doing as chaplain, I've had every single type of question. Students were coming with family issues, students were coming with faith issues, uh, academic issues, general questions, looking for conversation, but far and away the most common issue in 2015-16 was anxiety. And I trace this back to that moment a little over two years ago where uh, three Syrian students in Chapel Hill were murdered. Murdered point blank. That was a story that, that just flew throughout the Muslim community immediately. And from that point forward, students started visiting me in the office full of anxiety with the fear that this concern that, that hate against Muslims was now going to spontaneously manifest into violence, that that was finally happening. Okay. Thankfully, it has not happened, although there's been many, many acts of violence against Muslims, among other minority groups and marginalized groups over the few years. Uh, this explosion that people have been afraid about has not happened. Nevertheless, when we began the school year this year, 2016-17, when we began the school year, uh, I noticed that our Muslim students were exhausted. And usually we begin the school year full of energy, full of enthusiasm. You're seeing your old friends, you're starting new classes, learning new things. But by and large, the Muslim students seemed very depressed. And that I relate to the events of last summer that began with the death of Muhammad Ali. And then literally just a few days later, there's the shootings in Orlando, and then bombing place after place after place after place after place. And a point to think about that many Muslims feel but may not realize that they feel is that you always have to be present. You always have to be on guard. You always have to be performing as Muslim because eyes are on you. That you're under a microscope more than you might want to think about. And that in itself can be exhausting, that you're always at the work of being Muslim. So we began the school year with an exhausted population of students. At Loyola, we have about 800 undergrad Muslim students, from, primarily from Chicago, but from all over the world. And as we got closer to the elections, the sentiment was shifting back to anxiety and to fear about what's going to take place in this election. Who's going to win? And if he wins, what's going to happen to us? So Tuesday evening, I was getting calls and texts and Facebook messages from students saying he's going to win. It's, it's, it's done. And I would respond by saying, no way. There is no way this man can win. And hour would go by, more students are contacting me. And again, I'm saying, no chance. This man cannot win. Then we get to 10 o'clock, 
and then we get to 11 o'clock, and now there's only a few states left, and I thought, I can't believe it. This is actually happening. And from that point through the end of the week, 24-7, all day Wednesday, all day Thursday, all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day, all night, I was getting letters, texts, calls from students who are now terrified. What is going to happen to us? What is going to happen to us as a community? What's going to happen to me personally? Is everything now going to fall apart? And unfortunately, my answer then and now has had to be, I don't know. That I have no idea where we are going to be as a nation and where are we going, where are we going to be as a Muslim population a year from now. That's the cold, hard reality of the situation that we're in. I mean, to put it in further perspective, long before this election, at the advice of some of my colleagues, you know, I started reading up on the history of what was taking place in Germany in the 1930s, what was taking place in Bosnia and Serbia in the late 1980s, and reading a lot of books like, for example, Hannah Arendt, and even looking from those perspectives, you would think that this election was inevitable. Okay. If not in 2016, then at some point. Okay. And so move forward from the election <clears throat> all the way into inauguration. As we got closer to January, students were visiting me more and more with fear. But as we got to that week, and especially the day before, now they're literally coming to my office crying. Okay. And these are not just small tears. These are students who are so terrified that they cannot contain their tears. So. And I think all of us understand the sentiment. And what were they afraid of? They were afraid of the unknown. And keep that point in mind, because the unknown will always be there. But then we have the inauguration. And as we know, after the inauguration, we have this Muslim ban that takes place, which on, on the surface is, a, is a, uh, related to only six or seven countries, but at O'Hare Airport, we were getting stories from people from every single nation, including American citizens, who were getting questioned about everything under the sun. Which mosque do you go to? Are you affiliated with Al-Qaeda? Do you do this? Do you do that? Uh, what type, of, what type of, of, of scholars do you follow? Okay. And these are all questions that I then forwarded not only to our leadership at Loyola, but also to people who are connected with the ACLU and other attorneys and such. And nevertheless, one of the bright points was that many other people were standing up against the ban. And this is something that I had to draw our Muslim students' attention to, that many people have the sentiment right now, either that you cannot do this to this population or you cannot take this country from us. We own this country as much as everyone else. And I also want you to think about this point. One point to think about is the unknown. And another point, especially for the students here, especially for the students who are coming from transnational backgrounds, if someone were to ask you, are you an American, how long does it take for you to answer the question, yes? Okay. As I'm looking at most of you, including my niece, that you're probably born here and raised here. Okay. And which then means that you own this country as much as everyone else does. Now move forward to February and March, and in this period of time, the most common issue that students were approaching me with was problems of faith. Okay. 
How do I know Islam is true? How do I know there's a God? How do I know that there's one truth or multiple truths or how many truths? I don't know how to figure this out, so they're coming to me. Now, frankly, students have been coming to me with this question for decades, but at this point, there's been a surge. Okay. And to put it in perspective, in a given day, I'll probably have about eight scheduled appointments and then at least as many walk-ins. And I'm saying that this is at least 30% of the people who are visiting me in that time period. Okay. And I've been having trouble figuring out why. What is it that's causing this surge? Although one theory for us to think about, again, something that might be taking place within our community, especially among our students, is that we're watching the community of Muslims go through further and further disintegration. Okay. Now, let me take a step back for a moment. For those of us who are older in this room, uh, a point to think about is that the common college student right now of any religious background has no memory of 9-11, okay. especially the common first year, the common second year. Yet, Muslims in particular have had to live in the shadow of 9-11 as your norm. Okay. All those, all those of us who are older, we remember life before 9-11. We remember life before 1990 when things started shifting after the Soviet Union fell and then we started becoming the next enemy and you had the first World Trade Center bombing, you had other events. Uh, but these college students and those younger have no memory of that time before. Not only that, their entire lives, America has, America has been at war with Muslims. Okay. I mean, we have political conflicts, military conflicts throughout the world. But the ones that are always in the news, until recently with North Korea, the ones that are always in the news are the conflicts with Muslims. And so imagine, those of us who are older, imagine what's going on in the mind of, of a young Muslim growing up in America. And another difference between those of my generation and those of the younger generation is that when I was growing up as a kid in Chicago, the most famous boxer in the world was Muslim. One of the most famous basketball players in the world, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all-time leading scorer of the NBA, was Muslim. The Sears Tower, AKA the Willis Tower, was recently designed by a Muslim. And the point to think about is that as I was growing up as a kid in Chicago, uh, my heroes, my Muslim heroes, were mainstream figures. And for the current college students, those who are younger, uh, you don't have too many of those figures. There are a few figures. There are these football players, Hamza and Hussein Abdullah, who played in the NFL. There's this, uh, this fencer, uh, Ibtihaj Muhammad, who just earned the bronze um, at, uh, at the Olympics. But by and large, not many, if any, heroes. Okay? Not many, if any, people in big media that can become your representative as well as your inspiration. Okay? So coming back now to fall uh, to February and March, I said the most common issue has been problems of faith. And I suggested that maybe this is related to this trend of disintegration in whether you want to call it our psyche, our community, our sense of self, whatever it may be. In April, absolutely true, the most common issue that students have been visiting me with has been suicide ideation. Okay including attempts. But far and away, that's been the most common issue. Now, in this case, in conversations across campus and across other campuses, this is not a problem limited to Muslims. 
And the main lead we have right now trying to figure out what's causing this is perhaps this Netflix show, 13 Reasons Why. Those of you, uh, how many of you have heard of this show? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. And, and so as you know, this show is about uh, a girl who has killed herself, and, and then it's a series of, of episodes leading up to that point. I think that it has to be something more than that. Okay. But for the purposes of our talk, we're saying this is how far anxiety is going. Okay. That anxiety itself is something that can be addressed, but what is it that's leading to the anxiety? It may be leading to this general disintegration of our community. Okay. Now, <clears throat> Moving back to this idea, how do we handle this? So the title being, Being Muslim in an Age of Anxiety. I've spoken about anxiety. Now let's talk about what it means to be Muslim, and then we'll also talk about what does it mean to be being. So what should religion offer you? Whether we speak of Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Baha'i, etc., 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 uh, at one level, it offers you answers about what will happen on the other side. Okay. That if you take steps X, Y, Z, then on the other side, you have such and such things away, uh, waiting for you. Okay. Uh, or how to address where we are coming from. Where does it all begin? How do we get to where we are now? Okay. Answering some of those big abstract questions of life. What else does it also provide? It should be providing you with guidelines and how to navigate the world. That your religion should provide you with methods, or at the very least an outlook, and how to deal with whatever befalls you in this world, positive as well as negative. And so to put this in perspective, in our Muslim communities, we often speak of Islam as this series of tests. Your life is a test. Everything that happens to you is a test. But in the community, we never talk about how to pass the test. So to address this point, think about the test that we experience in life. And you can sum up every moment in your life as one or more of these four tests. One is the test of obedience. God says do, we do. The prophet, peace be upon him, says do, we do. Okay. And then from that, we have the development of our legal tradition, much of which is focused on figuring out what are the levels of priority of the different behaviors that we have, different actions that we have, interactions and such. Okay. That's the first test, the test of obedience. How do you pass? You obey. Okay. Or you try to obey. Second test is the test of struggle, which is much of what we're speaking about today. And what are we saying here? That it's a guarantee that you will be hit with struggle. Okay. And this is already one place where I find many of our Muslim college students are not as versed. I'm saying it is a guarantee from the divine in the Quran that you will be hit with struggle. Loss of life, fear, loss of wealth, loss of fruits, so forth and so on. It's a guarantee. The second guarantee is that you will never be hit with something that you cannot handle. Okay. Guarantee that you'll be hit with struggle, but any struggle you're hit with, you can handle. Now, what has been my experience with many of our undergrads, and this may or may not be true for Marquette students, is the sense that the default of life is ease. And a point I have to make is, no, that's not the default of life. 
The default of life is also not struggle, but the default of life includes struggle. So either you can live in anxiousness, trying to be ready for whatever it is that might befall you, or you can assume you're going to be hit at some point, but you're not going to worry about it today. So for all you know, tomorrow you may get into a car accident, okay? but why worry about it today if you don't know if it's going to happen? Okay? Rather, have the confidence that whatever it is that hits you, yes, it's going to hurt. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a test. But you can navigate through it. You can get through it. So how do you pass the test of struggle? You persevere through with conviction that you will get to the other side, unless, of course, it's a terminal illness. Okay? But otherwise, you will get through to the other side and keep a good impression of the divine the entire time. Okay? That will also be therapeutic in this process. And we'll revisit these points a little bit later. So the first test is obedience. The second test is struggle. The third test is ease. Ease is also a test. Some of us in this room might be going through struggle right now. Some of us in this room might be going through an illness or a family member who, who is suffering from illness or other sorts of fear. Yet at the same time, you're sitting here in the comfort of this, office, of this room, of this beautiful museum. And so how do you pass the test of ease? With gratitude. Okay. When we look in the Quran, the second surah, the longest surah of the Quran, much of the surah is about the community known as Bani Israel, the children of Israel. The children of Israel in the Islamic paradigm are actually Muslims. Okay? Followers of Moses. Moses in the Islamic paradigm is a prophet of Islam. And his followers, his companions, the children of Israel and their descendants are essentially Muslims. Okay? But this story about them in this second surah is a story of a population that received every single luxury, every single miracle. But their tragic flaw was lack of gratitude. And because of the lack of gratitude, they went from a position of every single luxury to disgrace. Okay. And so what are we saying? That the third type of test being ease, the way you pass this test is gratitude. Like, for example, gratitude for the ability to sit here in peace and quiet. Gratitude for the delicious meal. Okay. Gratitude that there will be an end to my talk at some point. Right? Okay. And the fourth type of test, so obedience, struggle, ease, the fourth type of test is when you have to make difficult decisions in life. Sometimes life gets so complicated that you have four options and they're all bad. And you have to choose which one. Right? In the community work that I do in Chicago, in multiple times, I've had to make choices knowing that, all right, if I take choice A, then this is the mess that's going to be created. If I take choice B, then this is the mess that's going to be created. Or choice C or choice D. All of them, bad choices. Okay. And so how do you pass that test? You pray to the divine. We have a particular prayer called istikhara, which is the literal translation is seeking good. And you make the best decision you can. We trust in the divine. And if you determine that you made the wrong choice, then you do whatever it takes to either repair things or to make a different choice. But the point is you're working with trust in the divine. Okay. Those are the four tests. And what am I saying here? That we're saying that religion is here to help you navigate life. Then in the Islamic paradigm, we're saying every moment that you experience is a moment designed by the divine to test you. And these are the ways to pass. But what are the essential tests for? Purification. Okay. 
So we have a word also in Arabic. In fact, we have an Arabic professor. She can, she can correct me. Uh, fitna. Fitna often translated as chaos. And correct me if I'm wrong. In the etymology of fitna, it speaks of purifying gold. Okay. Am I more or less correct? Okay. okay. And what is the idea here? That when you're hit with a test, it is there for the purpose of purifying you. That your natural default is good. That the, your natural default is to have a connection with the divine. That your natural default is to have an innate sense of right or wrong. But as you're being raised in society and as you're making choices in society, sometimes your natural default gets clouded. Sometimes it gets sealed. And the point of these tests is to remove the impurities. The impurities that often come from the, the choices that I've made over the years. With what goal? That you have nothing between you and the divine. So when speaking about dealing with life, what are we saying here? That in this Islamic lens, but it's obviously not limited to Islam, we're saying that every moment that you're experiencing, the divine has tailor-made for you in that particular moment. And the divine has tailor-made this for you, compelling you to respond. Okay. And either it's a moment of obedience, or it's a moment of struggle, or it's a moment of ease, or it's a moment where you have to make a difficult decision. Okay. But the point of it is to purify you, to bring you closer to the divine. Which then means what? And this is consistent across not just religions, but other philosophies. We're saying that there's something bigger about life than the day-to-day -day struggle. But this was something that used to keep me up at night when I was a college student. I kept thinking to myself, there has to be more to life than going to college, getting a degree, getting the job, getting married, having children, raising them to go to college, to get a good degree, to get a good job, to get married, to have children, and just continuing the cycle over and over again. And of course, as my sister is here, she can tell you that, you know, maybe it took me a little bit longer to go through college to get my degree, and then I just made things more complicated from there. But nevertheless, this was something that I often wrestled with. Why there has to be more than this, than this cycle. Okay. And when I was younger, a friend of mine uh, told me to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that answered the question for me. And the answer is simply, yes, there is. Good. And what is bigger at one level? It's purpose. Okay. So we're taught in the Islamic paradigm there's a passage in the Quran where God is speaking in the first person, saying, I did not create humans and then this other being jinns except to worship me. Meaning the purpose of existence is worship, surrender, service to the divine. But also, what is the book providing for me, here we're speaking about the autobiography, is that my life is much bigger than my own that whatever struggles I am experiencing, there are a whole lot of people in the world who are experiencing bigger struggles. Now, one of the blessings that, that we've had, we grew up in the south side of Chicago. We grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. Much of the story of Malcolm X takes place not too far away from where I was raised. So here, I was able to actually go to all these locations and make it come alive. But I'm making this point to the Muslim students in this room that yeah, a whole lot of very bad things have happened to a whole lot of Muslims. After the election, hate crimes 
against Muslims have skyrocketed. I heard some statistic, like something like 13,000%, some insanely large number like that. As have hate crimes against other communities, like Jews, hate crimes have skyrocketed. Uh, Latinx, Latino, Latina, hate crimes have skyrocketed. LGBT, hate crimes have skyrocketed above all of our other communities. And another point to think about, one category that's not mentioned in this list, are African Americans. And a point to think about is that as difficult as some of your struggles are, here I'm speaking to the college students, the Muslim college students, I've witnessed with my own eyes institutionalized racism. I've been in cars with my friends, black American friends, driving along, and a police officer, and I'm not criticizing police officers, I have a cop in my family who I love very much, police officers will just pull up and stare. Not the stare of, hey, how are you doing? but the stare of suspicion that many of you Muslims know that people are wondering, you know, are you a threat? Okay? Except these stares are stares with smiles. Okay? Not friendly smiles. Smiles as in, what do you think is going to happen to you now? What are you going to do? Okay? I've seen this over and over again as I grew up. Okay? And so... Why am I bringing this up when we're speaking about living in an age of anxiety for you and I? One of the ways to treat your own struggles is to see the struggle of those who have less than you. So there's teachings attributed to the prophet, may peace be upon him. Put yourself in the company of people who have more of the hereafter, more of God than you, and put yourself in the company of people who have less of the world than you. And one point that I'm suggesting is that if you can dedicate yourself in whatever capacity to providing service, it will cure a lot of your anxiety. I'm not telling you it is the cure. It'll temper a lot of your anxiety. Because a lot of the anxiety is just fear of the unknown. And when you see the struggles of other people, it will diminish a whole lot of this. You and I should be doing it anyway as Muslims. Okay. But I'm saying this to help deal with what's happening in life. Okay. But now take this a step further. Let's talk about dealing with the unknown, and we'll also talk about prayer. So I mentioned that the unknown is something that will never escape you. You're always going to wonder what's in your future. Okay. And what does the common Muslim at Loyola worry about? The same thing that the common Muslim at Marquette worries, worries about, which is Am I going to get into med school? Am I going to get married? Right? Those questions. And and so we already said that you're not going to be hit with any struggle that you can't handle, but you will definitely be hit with struggle. But one of the whole purposes of religion is to give you trust with the unknown. That if you're in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of the night, and it's completely dark, If you have faith, you have conviction that there is light somewhere. If you're in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the night, in the dark, you have conviction that there is land somewhere. This gets into the story in Islamic tradition of Hagar. Hajar, the mother of Ishmael, the mother of Ismail. We often speak of this story when we talk about struggle, when we talk about suffering. And to make a long story short, the Muslim narrative of the story of Abraham, peace be upon him, 
this part of the story, she gives birth to Ishmael. But then God says to him, take her and, and your son to this barren valley of Bukka. Okay. This is the place that later becomes Mecca. And he takes them there, and he turns around and starts heading back home. And then she says to him, Hagar says to him, are you leaving us here with no food or water? Doesn't respond. She asks again, are you leaving us here with no food or water? Doesn't respond. And as is the case in all these religious stories, often it's something happens three times or seven times. She asks a third time, okay, did God tell you to leave us here? And he says, yes. And then she said, well, then God is going to take care of us. So when you're in the middle of the darkness, at the very least, if you have faith, you have hope. She didn't have hope. She had conviction. Now, she knows that there's sustenance for her somewhere. If this is an instruction from the divine, if the divine is telling you to do this, then the divine is going to give you the scenario where you can fulfill it. So she sets down her baby, who's crying, and she runs to the top of a hill. Every Muslim knows the story. Looking in the distance for any sign of food or water, sees nothing, comes back to her child, uh, makes sure her child's okay, runs to the top of another hill, looking in the other direction. Is there any food or water? Nothing. She keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then as Muslims know, one of the variations of the story is that her baby, Ishmael, Ismail, is kicking the ground so much that it unleashes a pool of water, the well of Zamzam. Okay? But now think about this. She had conviction that the sustenance was there. If she just sat there waiting for the sustenance to fall on her, she wouldn't have found it. If she didn't set her son down as she was going to look for the sustenance, she wouldn't have found it. But she went to look, and it happened to be right underneath her feet. But she wouldn't have found it if she didn't go lurking. So what else am I saying here? That if we have faith, if I can develop this understanding that everything that is, that is being placed before me is by design, with full attention from the design, designed for me, from the divine, designed for me, and I'm saying that the world is a bigger place, I'm also seeking to have conviction that not only can I pass any struggle that the divine gives me, but he's also going to take care of me. You know, there's this book and this movie called The Secret. I don't know if you've heard about this. This was really popular for a while. And and we were talking, uh, I was talking with Father Tom just a moment ago. One of my mentors is Roger Ebert, the film critic. And all of you should go online just to look up his review of this movie, The Secret. He hates this movie. Because it's promising, in his view, something that's nonsensical. And the idea, I hope I'm not offending anyone talking about the secret, the idea is that you will it, and then something will happen. We'll talk about prayer in a second. And then Dave Chappelle has has a not-safe-for-work stand-up comedy bit on YouTube about this, where I'll remove some of his words, where he says, all right, so go tell, you know, some kid who's starving, okay, just picture a turkey sandwich, see if it falls down. Okay. Anyway, now, why am I bringing this up? That... Faith is hope, but if you can bring yourself to conviction that you will be taken care of, even if it means you have to remind yourself about this over and over and over again, it will cure a lot of the difficulties you face in life. Again, I'm not saying it's going to cure anxiety completely, but these are things that if you don't have them, they will inflame anxiety. So now having said that, let's talk about how prayer works. We're going to do a couple exercises.
to get a sense of how to pray, right? Most everyone in this room in some capacity, if you have some religious outlook, you probably pray in some way, okay? Or supplicate. To whom? That's a different question. Or to what? That's a different question. But often we're not taught in the Muslim community, we're not taught how to pass the tests. We're often actually not taught how to pray. I'm not talking about the mechanics. I'm talking about what takes place inside. So three simple exercises. Four. Number one, I want you to think of something that you would like to have that you can probably get pretty easily even before leaving this room. An example of that is maybe you'd like to have a cold glass of water. Okay. Or maybe a dessert. Okay. Or maybe some fresh air. Think of something you'd like to have they can easily get. And I want everyone to focus on your object for the next 15 seconds. Okay? Everyone have something? You don't tell us what it is. Something you'd like to have that you can get pretty easily. Okay, begin. Focus on this thing for the next 15 seconds. I'm picturing a tall glass of water. And while you're thinking of that, Okay, stop. Were you able to do it, kind of? Yes, nod your head, shake your head, make sure you're awake. Okay, very good. <clears throat> now what I'd like you to do is focus on your desire for that thing. So I was thinking about a tall glass of water. Now I'm going to focus on my thirst. Okay. So do this. Well, instead of 15 seconds, we'll do it for 10 seconds. Okay. Focus on your thirst, your yearning, your desire for whatever it is. Okay, begin. Stop. Able to do it? Kind of? Nod your head, shake your head, one or the other, both. Okay, very nice. Now I'll take it a step further. I want you to think of something, I want you to think of something that you wish you could have, uh, but it might take a lot more effort than just finding it in this room. Okay. You know, maybe it's to be able to go to sleep in your comfortable bed. Okay. Or maybe it's to have a clean house. Something that'll take some effort, but something that you'd like to have, okay? Same idea, focus on this thing, okay? Begin. Stop, okay? Still with me, so far so good? Okay, shake your head, nod your head, okay? Now once again, focus on your desire for it. Focus on your yearning, your thirst for it. Begin. Stop. Okay, so far so good. Last exercise. This one's more difficult. I want you to focus on something you really wish you could have but it is such a vulnerable feeling that you stop yourself. You often censor yourself, censor yourself from it. Now, what type of, of, of thing am I talking about? Maybe you have a beloved who has passed away that you wish you could be reconnected with, reunited with, but it hurts so much 
that you don't even want to think about it. For college students, this is serious, that often what are college students seeking? Validation, approval from their parents. So much so that it becomes a place of pain. So I want you to think of something you really, really wish you could have, not share it with anyone else, okay? that it actually makes you tender inside. Okay? And focus on this now for the next 10 seconds. Begin. Stop. In the last part, focus on your desire for that. So if I wish I could be reunited with this person who has left, now I'm going to focus on my desire to be reunited. So you focus on the desire. Okay? This is the last exercise. Okay, begin. Stop. So now this feeling of yearning, this feeling deep in your heart of yearning, you make all of your prayers with that yearning. Things big, things small. Whether you're praying for, for reunification in this life or the next life, or you're praying for something as small as a glass of water, you pray with that level of yearning. Good. And then that's what we mean by presence. Because what are you doing? You're being honest with yourself. Okay. But there's something else there. When we read the first surah of the Quran, in English or in Arabic, you alone, meaning the divine, you alone do we worship, you alone do we ask for help. This is a prayer that we make as a we. And what you saw in this room is that everyone has something. Every one of us has hurt. Every one of us has that space in our hearts that used to be filled by something or someone that is now an empty space. Okay. And another major part of belief is that we carry our struggles together. Right? Even if you look at the etymology, whether we speak of the etymology of the word religion or in Arabic the word deen, what does the word deen mean? It means interaction, system of interaction. The word for human being in the Islamic paradigm, insan, is the one who needs interaction. Is the one who needs interaction, right? And even when we speak of the entirety of the Islamic tradition, you can trace it back to the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, which you can trace back to the first chapter of the Quran, the first surah, which you can trace back to the first line, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which you can trace back to the B. And what is the B in or with? It is connection. And so what am I saying is also a very important technique of diffusing anxiety, of being, is to be connected. So a question to think about, how many friends do you have for whom you would show up for them if they're in need? If you were to make a list in your mind that if this person has a problem at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you have to sleep because you have a huge day tomorrow, you would drop everything to go help them. Okay. That's friendship. And how many people do you have in your list who would do that for you, hopefully? Okay. 
What am I saying? One of the causes of, of difficulties in our society is that we're also disconnected from each other. And so if you and I can be more present with the divine in terms of how we look at the world, we will diffuse a lot of our anxieties. And if you and I do it together, where you are investing yourself in your friends. I mean, that's what marriage is. You're investing yourself in your spouse. That's what friendship is. You're investing yourself in your friend. This is also my work as chaplain. I'm investing myself in the student. The student is giving me a piece of their heart they're entrusting with me, and sometimes I'm trading, I'm giving them a piece of my heart. But when you're developing that connection, you're doing the work of religion, and you're also diffusing anxiety. Okay. And the last point, and we'll stop here, is that I keep emphasizing that this does not cure anxiety. Okay. That when we speak of mental health, whether we speak of depression, whether we speak of anxiety, whether we speak of, of other, other concerns, mental health is a real thing. Okay. That in our Muslim community, we're only slightly beginning to accept as a real thing. Very often our answer, the students come to me, the answer they receive is, okay, your problem is just that you need to pray more. Go pray and the problem goes away. Okay. That's one of the worst pieces of advice you can give. Okay. I mean, obviously you have to pray. Okay. And sure, pray for this problem to go away. Why don't you just give this advice to someone? Okay. Uh, but the point is that sometimes we do need to go to mental health professionals to deal with anxiety from that perspective. Because sometimes it is physiological. Depression is real. Sometimes it is physiological. Okay. But what I hope has been accomplished in the course of this talk, taking us to places that may not be orthodox for a talk like this, where I took us to places deep down inside, with the intention of guiding us in how to make prayers, but also as a reminder for you and I that we are real people. Yeah. Every single person in this room is real with a whole story, with a whole history, with struggles, with hopes. And for me, working in chaplaincy, one of the most wonderful parts of it is just learning about other people. Learning about other people who go through their struggles. And then, of course, figuring out what I can do to help them. So with that, may the peace and blessings of God be upon you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.